Rob Cartledge here of robcartledgeministries.com. In 1 Peter 3.15, we are told to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Scripture exhorts us to be fluent in apologetics. In this world of postmodernism, our faith is being questioned more than ever before. In response, God has raised the standard and has given us more evidence for our faith than ever before. Apologetics 101. 1 Corinthians 2, 6-8. sermon today is called Biblical Authentication. And it's in the sermon series Apologetics 101, which we've been uh, doing now for, uh, I think this is our second sermon. And I think, Matthew, you've done a few, haven't you? Sure. Authenticating what the Bible has to say. If we can, without a shadow of a doubt, know that we can authenticate the Scriptures as being from the hand of God, then we're in a pretty stable position place aren't we as in a stable position the way i use the text in this apologetic series is not that i'm going to preach from the text it's just the text relating to the series and into the content that we're going to be uh, reading through the text is 1 corinthians 2 verses 6 to 8 and it says this we do however speak a message of wisdom among the mature but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing no, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They would not have crucified the Lord of glory if they just understood the wisdom that comes from God, the secret wisdom. If you want to try to get a grasp on why people don't understand you when you start talking to them about biblical truth, it's because it's secret wisdom. It's not a wisdom of the world. It's a wisdom of God. Therefore, it must be spiritually discerned. And that's why, to us, it can seem so logical and so true and so correct and, and makes so much sense. But to someone else, it's just total foolishness. So that's why that text is very good and we've got to understand what we're dealing with so we can combat what's happening out there in the, in the world. The church is facing one of the biggest crises in its history in the sense that the challenges and attacks from the last three to four generations of sceptics have found the average Christian defenceless. Uh, according to the, the methodologies of, of churches and the way that they've presented truth to the church over the last hundred years, it hasn't focused on these measures of, of preparing people for an onslaught, for an attack. And therefore, a lot of Christians have fallen away from the truth over the years um, because what would seem like better arguments have been put up to believe that are contra contradictory to what they've come to believe in, in, according to Scripture. And because of that, we're in a dilemma. The church is in a position where it has to raise a standard. And that's where we get this scripture when, from Isaiah 59.19. And it says, when the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of God will, will raise a standard against him. And so we're seeing that in this age, that the enemy is coming in like a flood, but the Spirit of God is going to raise a standard in its people, in, in the people of God, to combat this this uh, attack that is coming on uh, against it. I've noticed that in the last number of years, there's been a steady increase of quality books on apologetics in Christian bookstores. It's been increasing, hasn't it? Matthew and I, every time we go to uh, Kurong Bookstore, every time we go in there, well, if, if Matthew's there before me, I know exactly where he is. 
I don't have to look around in Christian living or in biography. He likes biography section, but I don't look there. I go straight to the apologetic section, and that's where he's standing every time. (laughs) Anyway, so more and more authors are answering the need to equip the body of Christ with answers to the tough questions being asked today. So there's questions that are being asked today by people in the world and they're attacking Christianity from every single angle and God is raising up all these Christian authors who are defending the truth from every angle and every time I've read any of these books, if you spend some time reading these books, every time I read them, their answers are so adequate, so reasonable, so logical that if atheists just took the time to do their research and and listen to the arguments from the other side and get a full gist of where they're coming from, they wouldn't help but become Christian. But the problem with atheists is not that they want a sound answer to their arguments. Atheists don't want to hear an answer. They want to be left alone to be atheists, cause everybody else to be atheists if they can, but they don't want an answer to their objections. They don't want to be corrected, in other words. So that's the problem we have with them most of the time. But any true seeker of truth will always look further into the fact, will always look further into the truth to find out what is, you know, what is the real reason behind this belief that I'm opposing. So the need that we have for apologetics is we need uh, to equip Christians to defend their faith with reasonable arguments. And there's two reasons. One is to adequately answer the questions and arguments of inquirers and offenders of Christianity. So when someone comes, into, uh, comes to you and they inquire about your faith, you've got to be able to put a sound, um, you know, stable, doctrinally accurate presentation of your faith to that person so they can say, actually, that sounds like a very reasonable faith. And also when someone comes and attacks you according to your belief, that you would have the answer there on hand at any time. So you can't be swayed by their attack and it might make you doubt in your faith. So we need to do the research. We really need to know what we believe, why we believe it, how to defend it. Uh, the second reason is, is we've got to protect the flock of God from deception. I go onto atheist forums and read what atheists say. Johnny and I went on to an atheist forum and, and I also, when I'm on YouTube and I, I look what, read the links and I'm always reading the arguments of atheists and this one particular one and, and others that I've been on, atheists will say, I used to be a Christian, I was brought up a Christian, but then, a, you know, according to some science teacher, just an average science teacher at school, swayed them from the faith with their argument for evolution. And you just think, gee... How could a pastor have that child in his church and the parents, the family of that child, have that child in their life for, you know, 15 years and then they go into one science class, get taught a contradictory view and they give up the faith. They give up the faith like that. What were the pastors doing with all those years? What were the parents doing for all those years that their child is so easily swayed from the truth? And that's a dilemma. Again, that's a problem in the church because uh, parents have to know apologetics to teach their children apologetics so that their children won't be swayed by some futile evolutionary argument. 
which when you look into intelligent design and you and not like an atheist looks into it because they only look on a surface look and they reject it because it conflicts with what they think. So the moment something conflicts with what they think, they reject it. But if they look into it deeply with a um, an intention to find out the truth of what intelligent design is all about, like the real nuts and bolts of it, they can't help but see that it is a far stronger argument than uh, evolution. Much more sound. Uh, but these kids aren't taught that. So if their pastors had focused on the reasonableness of the faith and taught apologetics to their flock, there would be far less casualties. Don't you believe? There'd be far less casualties in the church if people knew how to defend the faith. Do you know what we're doing? The Bible tells us that we're in a spiritual war. You know, the uh, weapons of a war for a spiritual, uh, we don't battle against the flesh and blood, we battle against the powers and principalities in the heavenly realms. We're in a spiritual war. Now imagine if you had an army and you're in a physical, you've got a physical army in the world, but you don't teach them how to fight. And then you go out and, and suddenly you're in a battle and no one knows how to fight. No one knows how to shoot a gun. No one knows how to hold a shield. No one knows how to swing a sword. No, none of these things can be done by this army because the, the generals and the leaders of that army didn't teach their people how to defend themselves against the incoming invaders. Would that be ridiculous? What sort of army would you... You wouldn't even be called an army, would you? Now, we're in a sense, we're in a similar situation. The Christian church has been placed in a world that is at... at uh, is, is a taxa, is, it's like a war field. You know, we're on a battlefield right here on planet Earth and we've got to know how to defend ourselves because there's going to be loads and loads and loads of times in your life where people are going to attack what you believe and some of them can attack quite viciously. Paul's fear, this, you know, Paul had fear. He had a fear of God, but he had another fear too. Uh, not for himself, but for others. His fear was this in 2 Corinthians 11.3, but I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. His fear was that, that the people of Corinth could be deceived by the serpent's cunning. And that fear is also in me that the, the church today could be deceived or is being deceived by the serpent's cunning and people are falling away from a pure devotion and sincere devotion to Christ. I'm just going to run through um, some information about apologetics and where to start because everyone needs to know where to start with apologetics. Um, a fantastic place to start um, your studies would be to read the works and watch the videos of some of the leading apologetic thinkers on earth today. And there's plenty of them. I'm just going to list a few of the big ones. William Lane Craig at www.reasonablefaith.org, um, a fantastic theologian, philosopher, um, scientist, you name it. He's just a, a wealth of information. When you hear this guy speak, it just blows your mind. He's got a um, podcast called Reasonable Faith. And in that podcast, the interviewer in it will ask him questions, like quest um, questions that are brought up in blogs and, and so on from off the internet. And it'll be questions like the tough questions that people are asking today. And the answers that William Lane Craig give are just profound, really worthy of listening to. They last about 20 minutes each podcast. They're very quick and easy to listen to. I'm in the habit now of putting his latest Reasonable Faith podcast on my little iPod shuffle. And while I'm on my runs and stuff, I listen to his latest uh, week by week. And I do that with a, a lot of 
uh, or various podcasts from different speakers that I like, like Joe Schimmel and uh, Pastor Neil Ryan, Pastor Mark Jurisic, um and of, of course Chuck Missler. All right, and there's also John Lennox, another leading apologist at www.johnlennox.org. And Lennox has got an X on the end. He's a, not Lennox with a CK. Thought I'd put that in there. Now you know why I said it, don't you? No, not John Lennon. <laughs> I knew someone would say that. He's already said it over here. Yeah, but John Lennox is also another brilliant speaker. Um, I saw him in a debate with Rich Dawkins and he made Richard Dawkins just sound like a frustrated schoolboy in comparison to the power and the authority with which he spoke in, in the debate. And it's really worthwhile watching that sort of video. Ravi Zacharias at www.rzim.org, another incredible speaker, leading theologian and apologist in the world today. Ravi Zacharias makes so much sense when he speaks. I love the way he speaks. I love the way all these guys speak. But Ravi just seems to... Um, he, he delights the mind when you hear him speak. Do you know what I'm talking about? Must be the Indian accent. <laughs> Michael Lycona, another great apologist. He's, he majored in uh, the resurrection of Christ at university. I can't remember which university he came from. Uh, he's in South Africa somewhere. South Africa somewhere. Anyway, www.risen-jesus.com. Pretoria. Pretoria, very good memory over there. Michael Lycona from Pretoria, University of Pretoria. He's got a great book called uh, Muhammad versus Paul, or Paul versus Muhammad, I think. And uh, I haven't read it, but Matthew's read it and says it's fabulous. Really, really good reading. So um, it's it's a uh, fictional argument between the two of them because you can't have the two of them meeting in an argument because they were 700 years apart and 1,400 years ago was the, when yeah. Muhammad was there. But he put forward the argument according to how a Muslim would put it forward and then the rebuttal according to the way a Christian would put it forward. So worthwhile reading. There's also some fantastic videos to watch. Lee Strobel's, he's got three uh, brilliant videos, uh, A Case for Christ, A Case for the Creator and A Case for Faith. Uh, they also have corresponding books, uh, which have uh, much media than the video. But get started by watching the videos first. We watched one last night, uh, last week in church, uh, and as you know, everyone could tell, it's, it's brilliantly presented and uh, puts forward some really, really good cases for Christ. Uh, we're going to be watching the case for the Creator in coming weeks as well, and the case for faith later on. So, um, but they're three great videos. That's a good starting point. Uh, debates that you can watch again: William Lane Craig, John Lennox, Ravi Zacharias, and others. Check them out because they—I've um, uh, watched quite a few debates. You learn a lot as you watch them because uh, you hear the the best thinkers in the world put forward their arguments. You will always come, uh, from my standpoint anyway, being a Christian. When I hear what the uh, the way the atheists debate against the uh, the theists, the atheist arguments seem so futile. Very, it's all sort of like um, uh, the basis of their argument is more coming out of frustration and anger and resentment and hatred towards God. And you can really tell that in the way they present their argument. But when the theists argue, it comes from logic and uh, they don't draw as much from the Word of God as, they, as I think they should, but that doesn't matter because they come forward with scientific perspectives, which are very profound and... Um, very reasonable.
So worthwhile watching. Videos which reveal truth about our modern culture is another apologetic knowledge that you should get into as well, to be able to accurately discern between the morality as presented in the Bible to the influence which is our modern culture has had upon us, uh, upon all of us. Watch the videos, They Salt Their Souls for Rock and Roll by Joe Schimmel. Now, the title is sort of, it's an expose on rock and roll music and popular music, but it also goes into uh, modern culture and philosophy and the, and very influential thinkers of the day and that sort of shows uh, how Satanism has influenced our modern culture and how we live in a pagan culture. Brilliant um, expose there by Joe Schimmel. Hell's Bells Part 1 and 2 by Eric Holmberg, another brilliant documentary, fantastic. I've only watched number two, I've watched parts of number one, but number two I know is very, very good, so watch that. Now Megiddo 1 and 2 by Adullam Films, also a very good expose um, on... Uh, the powers that are at work behind the scenes that through secret societies and what have you and how they've influenced our modern culture. They're really good to, uh, to watch. The only issue I have with those two videos is Megiddo 1. In the, near the beginning of it, they attack Rick Joyner, who's one of my uh, favourite authors. I've read, I don't know, 15 to 20 of his books and they attack him as a false prophet. And I really don't understand why they're coming from that angle or why they would bother attacking a brother. They really got their eyes off the, the ball at that moment in the, uh, in the video. Um, and the, the, the issue is, is, is any Christian leader without fault? Do, do any of us not make mistakes? Now, we don't attack one another because of little mild mistakes. Now, whether um, Rick Joyner made a mistake as presented in the video is is beside the point. The point is he is a Christian brother who loves Jesus, loves him as the risen saviour. He preaches the resurrection. He's he's a passionate Christian man. And so I really love Rick Joyner. So that's in Megiddo 1, I do not agree with that section of it. Um, but the rest of it is very well researched. The last one there was Hollywood's War on God by Joe Schimmel. He exposes Hollywood and its uh, Gnostic influence and um, how they're presenting Gnosticism to the to the masses, um, and that's a really good one. And there's another one that comes that you can also buy from Good Fight Ministries. Uh, from that same website, Good Fight Ministries, there's another one called Hollywood Unmasked, which is uh, brilliant. It's not it's not Joe Schimmel who's the host in that video, but it is a brilliant video uh, all the same. So check those out. Apologetic books to read. Every good Christian bookstore should have an apologetic section. Some great books to look into, uh, books by Lee Strobel, of course. Uh, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Now, Matthew, in his research, says that it's, it's held up as one of the best apologetic books ever written. Um, haven't read it. Have I have it. <laughs> haven't read it. Okay. Only because I've got hundreds and hundreds of books to read. <laughs> I've always got about a dozen books on the go. Um, I have read through the first chapter, but that's about it. Now, Has Science Buried God by John Lennox? That's a fantastic book. I'm Again, I've got that one on the go at the moment. I'm into about chapter four or five or something. Brilliant arguments there and also very scientific. So scientists will love reading that book. Reasonable Faith uh, is a book by William Lane Craig as well as a book called On Guard. Um, two really great books. William Lane Craig is prolific. There's dozens of books. What's the other one? Blackwell's Companion. Oh, you're right. To theology, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah he's, um, compiled that. he's compiled that and he's written a few of them. There's so many. 
There is. The apologetics, there's so many books because God's raised that standard and now he's just filled the shelves with heaps and heaps of books. The Real Faith of Ath- uh, sorry, the Real Face of Atheism by Ravi Zacharias. Um, I'm reading that. That was a Christmas present from Matthew. Again, Matthew's mentioned a lot in this sermon. Isn't Thank you for that, Matthew. But a uh, brilliant book, um, profound arguments Ravi puts forward. He's a very intellectual writer as the other guys are as well. Uh, there's also a book called The Christ Files. Uh, by John Dixon. Um, Pastor Neil Ryan, in his sermon just recently I've been listening to, um, I think his sermon is called Who Am I or Who Do They Say I Am or something like that. It's just a recent one at the Unley Park Baptist Church. Um, He spoke of the Christ file so highly as a book and he recommended everyone in the church read like three pages a day slowly and accurately and, and really absorb what's written. He says because it really does, um, gets rid of all the fluff and misconceptions of Christ and cuts down to who Christ is uh, according to scripture uh, without any Gnostic input or any uh, deceived or sensational claims about Christ and and so on. So that's another great book to look into, which is one I'm going to purchase and and read myself. Uh, So spend time in the apologetic section and get an idea of the quality books there on the subject. It's it's a, a, a brilliant place to look around because the books are just like all the answers you need for all the tough questions are there in that one section. One thing you're going to be confronted with generally as a statement that people come, an argument that they'll come and put forward to you is you'll find that you'll often be confronted with the question, why should I believe in a book which was written by men? And no matter how hard you try to tell them, no, no, it's not just written by men, it's written by the Holy Spirit through men and you can say all that, uh, they will not accept that, will they? Uh, If they're against God and and the existence of God, they're not going to accept the Bible either. Well, you know what? If if I did not believe that the Bible was divine, I would not believe in it. The only reason I read the Bible all the time is because I know it's from God. It's been given to us as a textbook to guide us through life, and it's paramount reading. It's the most important read that you can do, and it's not a read you do once in your life like a normal book. It's something that you read daily and you draw from like food, just like eating. It's like daily bread, and that's how we should treat the Bible. It's something that we go to regularly and we get our fix from, in a sense. You know, if you only ate food once a week, would you be hungry on the rest of the, day, uh, the week? You would. No matter how much you eat in that one day, it's not going to satisfy you for the whole week. It's only going to satisfy you for the day. So the Bible's the same. You've got to eat from it daily. And sometimes it's good to eat, you know, three square meals of it a day is good too. We don't just have one dinner every day, do we? We have breakfast, lunch and tea. But here are the answers which I will offer today. And... and The first answer you can give is you can turn it straight back on them. Turn the question back on them and say, well, everything you believe you admit to be written by men, so why do you believe what you do? They'll say, I don't believe the Bible because it's written by men and say, well, why should I believe what you say because you're not even confessing what you believe to be written by God. You're just believing it to be written by men anyway. And here's an interesting fact. And they'll use the latest scientific arguments to refute what you say. And, and they'll say things like, science says this, and it's the truth. And do you know what? They might hold really firmly to that belief that what they believe science is saying today is the truth. And they'll use that as their argument, and they'll believe it, and they'll be convinced of it. But in 10 years' time, in a lot of cases, if they still held that view, you know what they'd be looked upon as? Ignorant. 
by the scientific community. They'll say, the scientific community will say, are you still believing that? That's outdated, mate. You know, what are you believing that for? You, you've got to keep up to date. That's past. That's old belief now. This is what we believe now. This is the truth now. So their beliefs and their truths that they hold so firmly to today, they will die just about for their, for their opinions to be pressed today. But in 10 years' time, if they still held to them, in a lot of cases, they would be considered ignorant by their own associates or peers. And that says something about what they're holding to. That says something about truth. But hang on. If we hold to the truth that Jesus died for the sins of men 10 years ago, are we still going to hold on to it in 10 years? Is it going to change? No. It's not going to change. It's, that's what we're going to hold on to. No, yes, we will. We yes. will. He did. He answered it correctly. Now, the second answer, I'm not going to go any further into that, but the second answer is the reason why we should consider the Bible authoritative and written by God is because of the authentication codes which are throughout the text of Scripture. The Bible has authenticated itself. And people will say something like, hang on, the Bible can't authenticate itself. Yes, it can. And I'm going to go into it very briefly, but I'm going to draw on Chuck Missler's uh, a video that John and I are doing at the moment because we're going to Kinania Institute uh, through the internet and, um, and we're studying Prophecy 101 and in the first session, in session one, he goes into it. But Isaiah, we just got to remember this verse, Isaiah 46 verses 9 to 10, it says, Remember the former things, those of long ago, I am God and there is no other, I am God and there is none like me, I make known, get this, I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. God makes known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. Now, what's going to authenticate the Bible is, if God can make known things that are going to happen here, way back here in time, is that going to be a pretty decent authentication? Just say I get on the news, right? I get on the news and I say, in three weeks' time in China, there's going to be an earthquake. And a third of China is going to be destroyed by this earthquake. In three weeks' time. If that happens in three weeks' time, will people be all ears to me? Yeah. Would they be listening to me then? Yeah. Right? Would I authenticate my ministry then? They would be saying, who is this fella that could say that, right? Now, this, this is what we have in the Bible. The Bible has done this for itself. It's authenticated what it is throughout this Bible. I'm going to go right into that today, or as far as I can go into it today. In my opinion, from all my research, Chuck Missler is the best Bible teacher and interpreter of prophecy in the world today. That's my opinion. I'm allowed to have it. All right. Now, whether you agree with that or not, you've got to have to agree he's pretty good at what he does. Because if, you, if anyone gives him the time of day and watches a few of his videos, you're going to agree Chuck Missler's pretty, pretty hot on with everything he says. There might be a few disputable things, but most of it I find is very satisfactory to, what I'm, to the way I think. And he opens my mind up to a lot of things I've never thought which is why, why John and I study at his institute, because it's just amazing what we're learning. 
Chuck said in session one of the video series Prophecy 101, he said this, since God has the technology to create us, and when he uses the term technology, get out of your mind computers and hardware and all this sort of stuff. Think of a technology more advanced than anything possibly created, at more of a, like a spiritual technology, just the capacity to do it. Think of it from that perspective. So since God has the technology to create us, he certainly has the means to get a message to us. Do you think if he wanted to place a message on earth, he had, the, he had the power to do that? If God could create the universe and everything that is in it, create mountain ranges, create nature, create the animal kingdom, create humans, give us intelligence, do you, if he could do all that and we can go and write books and do all that stuff, do you think he has the power to not only write a book but place it on earth? Using his vessels that, that honour him as God to write the book for him? by the Holy Spirit who comes upon them. Do you think he has that capacity to transmit that? We have the capacity to pick up a phone and ring each other and transmit a message. Why can't God transmit a message? Through divine means. I find it very reasonable, extremely reasonable. But you have to believe in God to believe in his power to do that. So since He, God has the technology to create us, he certainly has the means to get a message to us, but how does he authenticate his message so that we know that it is really from him and not a contrivance or a fraud? This is the question, and this is what I'm presenting today. To get a more complete briefing on what I mean by authentication codes in the Bible, please spend the time and watch session one of the video, Prophecy 101, by Chuck Missley. You can view it on YouTube. Uh, and it's worth every minute that you spend watching it. And I think Bill said he watched it three times. Is that right, Bill? A week ago or something? And uh, Johnny's watched it a number of times and listened to it, and I've listened to it a lot of times. It's really worth getting in your head, this stuff. The Bible is the only book on earth which not only contains over 8,000 predictive passages in the Bible, and around 2,000 of them have been fulfilled to the letter with no errors. No errors at all. There's no error in the Bible in the sense of prophetic passages that have come to pass have been fulfilled exactly as written in the Bible. These fulfilled Old Testament prophecies were not added later after the fact but were translated to Greek in the Septuagint 300 years BC and many have been fulfilled after then that translation was completed. So they translated the Old Testament, Hebrew Old Testament, and I think parts of it was Aramaic, and they translated it into Greek. In that sense, any Old Testament prophecy that would come to pass after that date, it confirms that it was definitely written 300 years earlier. Had to be 300 years before Christ's coming. Um, in, in that sense, it authenticates those Old, Old Testament prophecies being true. No other ancient book has been authenticated through this means, not the Quran, Hindu Vedas, Bhagavad Gita, uh, the Book of Mormon, Nostradamus, nor occultic mediums have been able to be this accurate. But we're going to look at the coming of Christ. The coming of Jesus Christ alone authenticates the Bible as well as authenticates the deity of Christ. Over 300 prophecies were fulfilled in the life of Christ. He is the only person in history that has had his entire life laid out in Scripture and then lived it out to the letter. The only person that every moment of his life would be foretold somewhere in the Old Testament. Isn't that amazing? And he walked it out. 
Some people try to tell you that Jesus deliberately set out to fulfill prophecy. However, prophecies like Micah 5.2, that he would be born in Bethlehem, could not be fulfilled in this way. For him to be born in Bethlehem, God had to place him there. So that proves that God had control of his life and made sure that he fulfilled Scripture to the letter. The fact that he actually tried to fulfill it is even more reason because he was trying to say, I am God. Yeah. Well, well, an example of that is he um, rode into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. Now, uh, a colt, a foal of a a donkey. (laughs) That's what it says. (laughs) And um, so Jesus actually premeditated that. He said, go to this person, I've got it organised, bring the donkey to me and I'm going to ride on it, a baby donkey. He did that to announce his messiahship. They tried to force him to be king many times before that in his ministry. He never accepted any of those times. He says, my time has not yet come. But then his time had come and he said, I'm going to now announce that I'm the Messiah. I'm going to come into Jerusalem. He allowed people to sing Hosanna in the highest and blessed is he who comes in the name of, of the Lord. And he allowed him, himself to be acknowledged at that time. Now, in relation to that, the reason why that had to be was not only did he fulfill the, the fact that the Messiah would come riding on a donkey, but also there was, uh, Chuck Missler goes into it, there was a, a timeline that had to be fulfilled where there was going to be a certain number of years would have to take place since the uh, since a certain time in the Old Testament till the time of him riding in on a donkey and announcing himself to be God, that you could actually add up those days and it comes to the exact amount of days that angel Gabriel had said. Now, I won't go any further with that, but it's in the videos in uh, session two of Prophecy 101. Very interesting uh, stuff was discovered there and Chuck Missler uh, goes into it. So take the time and check that out. But Lord Kelvin pointed out that until we measure a thing, we really know very little about it. Until it's measured, we don't know much about it, in the sense from a scientific perspective, from many angles. So by quantifying and systematically studying all the scriptures relating to the different matters in the Bible, we can conclude by probability alone that the Bible had to have been written outside of our time domain and of an extraterrestrial origin. Sounds a little bit like Chuck Missler, doesn't it? We can conclude that. So in the video Prophecy 101, Session 1 by Chuck Missler, he points out on very conservative estimates that the probability of any one man fulfilling even eight prophecies in a lifetime would be one chance in 10 to the power of 28. And that's a pretty huge number. And I'll just quickly tell you how he works out the chances. Just for example, the the chance that one man being born in Bethlehem and not necessarily the Messiah, just one man being born in Bethlehem, he did a conservative estimate that it will be one in a thousand chance that you'd be born in Bethlehem as a person. But the, the actual figures would be more like one in 100,000 because there's, they say the population of um, uh, Bethlehem is around 6,000, 7,500 at any time in history. So if that's the case and the population of the earth is at any time in history is, say, one billion... It's about one chance in 100,000 or less or, you know, one chance in 10,000. But Chuck just gives, gives a real conservative estimate, one in a 1,000. And then he, he, he gets eight prophecies, predictive prophecies, and he goes through each one and gives a conservative estimate. And then you combine all these and you get these, these sorts of figures. 
when Chuck ran the figures upon the likelihood of one man fulfilling just 48 prophecies of the 300 to choose from, and again using very conservative figures, the result was one chance in 10 to the power of 157. Now I'm going to explain the, the, how big those figures are now. This is all drawing from Chuck Messler's video. One man fulfilling eight prophecies in a lifetime would be one chance in 10 to the 28, which is the equivalent of filling up the state of Texas with silver dollars two feet deep and plunging your hand in somewhere in Texas and pulling out the only marked silver dollar. So the whole state of Texas, two feet deep in silver dollars, and you just plunge your hand in and you pull out the, the one marked coin that is there. That's the odds that Jesus could fulfill just eight prophecies or one man fulfilling it. That's the odds of that. That's a pretty large odd, isn't it? Now, 48 prophecies fulfilled in any man comes to one chance in 10 to the power of 157. Now, that, this is how big that is. If you get a, make a ball of every atom in the universe, every atom, how big is an atom? It's very, very small, right? You get every atom in the universe in the material universe. They say that comes to 10 to the power of 66. That's how many atoms there are in the universe, right? Now, 48 prophecies comes to 10 to the power of 157, so we're nowhere near it in the amount of atoms. You make one of those balls of every atom in the universe for every atom in the universe. That's a one massive ball of every atom, and then you equate that or multiply that by every atom in the universe. And you get 10 to the power of 66 by 10 to the power of 66, which equals 10 to the power of 132. Then what you do is you get all of that that you've just amassed, and you do that every second, that many for every second since time began, according to science. And that is 10 to the power of 17. So it ends up being 10 to the power of 149. 10 to the power of 149 versus 10 to the power of 157, we're still short by 100 million times. That's how the odds are in relation to one man fulfilling 48 prophecies. And again, as Chuck said, we've only dealt with 48 of over 300, right? Now, why am I saying all that? Because people are saying, where do you get all these figures from? You're just pulling figures out of the air. No, we're not pulling figures out of the air. This is how, this is a science of probabilities. This is an actual science of how they work things out as as probable or improbable. And it's very important because if something becomes improbable and something like the 300 prophecies being fulfilled in one man, Jesus, then we have a, we're in a situation where only a true God could have placed Jesus on the planet and fulfilled all those things because that God saw ahead of time what would be fulfilled in Jesus. He saw the life of Jesus before it occurred. Now, can any man do that? Only God can do that. So that proves the existence of God alone. So what this proves is that God had to have seen the end from the beginning. God could see the life of Christ on earth as it happened and described it to the prophets hundreds of years earlier in detail. From that perspective, we can only conclude that the chances that the Bible was not a work of God is improbable and out of the question. There's just no chance that those prophecies could be written by anyone but God. 
So the end from the beginning. God sees the end from the beginning. In that sense, we can understand God as one who inhabits all time. He inhabits it. It's not that God goes ahead and looks at the end from the beginning. He just is there. He is at the end. And he is at the beginning. He's still, he, God is still at the creation of the universe. He's still there. He could tell you in detail what's going on because he's still there. He's as much there as he is now as much as he is at the end as well, wherever, that end, wherever the end is. He is not bound by time, but knows every moment as if it has happened. Every moment that we experience, he already knows it. However, we don't have that capacity and we have to live it out. So it is not that we have lived it before. It's not that we're living out something we've already lived, like a deja vu type of thing. Um, but rather, as we live it out, it, we confirm God's all-knowingness. We confirm his omniscience. We confirm his prophecies. We confirm his knowing the end from the beginning. And it turns out exactly as he already knows because he inhabits all time. It turns out exactly as he made it out because he inhabits all time and cannot help but know the outcome. You know, if you, were at, if you had the capacity to be 100 years ahead of now, you couldn't help but know what's going on, could you? That's exactly God's situation. So in that sense, when Jesus is called the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, he is confirming the truth that he is not just everywhere present in the universe at once at any moment. So that's omniscience. That means God's with all of us here, but he's also with every other church that's meeting all around the world. He's also with every person everywhere in the world. He's also with every animal. He's also with every plant. He's also with every microscopic insect. He knows the, the course of every single ant. He can recall the course of every ant, not just at this one moment, but throughout all time. It's a pretty vast God, isn't it? And not just on this planet, but everywhere in the universe at once, throughout all time. So in that sense, when Jesus called the Alpha and the Omega the beginning and the end, he is confirming the truth that he is not just everywhere present in the universe at once at any moment, but he is everywhere present in all time and outside of time in all eternity at once. Just in relation to the first coming of the Messiah, Yeshua, the chances that the man Jesus could fulfill over 300 prophecies of Old Testament scripture proves without a shadow of a doubt that the giver of the prophecies could foresee the end from the beginning. Yeah? Isaiah 46, 9 to 10, and we'll just shoot down to where it says, I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. He makes known the end from the beginning because he's there already. He's seeing it already. It's an amazing God. So from that standpoint of Christ fulfilling over 300 Old Testament prophecies, authenticates himself as God, which is what the prophets voiced in their prophecies. Jesus fulfilling 300 prophecies confirms he is the Messiah, he is the Christ, he is the Son of God, because that's what they voiced back in those prophecies that the Lord said to my Lord, come and sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And he, he fulfilled that prophecy when he ascended and all the, the witnesses saw him ascend to the right hand of the Father until he would make an enemy a footstool for his feet. As well as the Bible as the inspired word of God. It authenticates the scriptures. We have an authenticated word that cannot be denied because prophecy proves it. 
When we understand the Bible by its patterns in prophecy and by reckoning the complete work of prophecy, we can't help but come to the conclusion that the Bible is an authentic and reliable text given to us by the hand of our Creator God who had the means to get a message to us and authenticate His message. Amen? He had the means to get this to us, place it in our hands, place it in our hearts, so that we can be guided by life. And you know what? If you hold to it, and you walk in it, and you believe it with all your heart, yours is the kingdom of heaven. You'll receive the kingdom of heaven. You'll get into heaven, and you'll get in through Jesus, who will open his arms and says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Welcome. Come and enter into thy rest. How many people today say, um, I'm tired? You say, how are you going? I say, tired, always feeling tired, you know. Everyone. That's why Jesus says, when he, here's one of his words when you enter into heaven. One of the first things you hear him say, enter into my rest. If you're tired, he's going to welcome you into his eternal rest. And it's not a place that you sleep all the time. It's a place where you don't get tired. You can't get tired in heaven. You can't be low on energy. You can't feel sick and unwell. You, you'll just feel fantastic. Because this life is the probationary life. This is where we have to sort it all out. God's put loads of things against it, or allowed loads of things to be against it, I should say. There's a lot of things that will try to stop you from being a Christian, stop you from doing what you should do, stop you from reading the Scriptures, stop you from, from believing in Jesus. There's loads of things. There's lots of really good arguments out there. But if you're a scholar, and in the sense that you don't have to be a professor, but if you're someone who's willing to study the Word and get to know the Word deeply and cause yourself to uh, uh, know how to answer adequately the, the, the objections that people put towards this, then not only will you save yourself, you could save those that listen to you. And that's why it's so important. Yeah, so let's pray. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, we just thank you for um, giving us this word today. And I just pray that you will help us to... Um, to walk in the fullness of, of what we're talking about here, Lord, is, is knowing how to defend the, uh, the faith and keep ourselves strong in the faith. Lord, help us, uh, Lord, to be scholarly in our uh, approach to Christianity, that we'll treat it with the sort of um, uh, importance that it should be treated. We'll place it in that place of importance in our life, that place of honor in our life where we we look to it first every day, that we'll go to the Bible every day, that we'll read it every day, we'll study uh, books and, and, and so on and get an understanding of what we believe. Because, Lord, ultimately, we're with you for eternity. We're here such a short time. This sh life is so short, but eternity is so long. And, Lord, we're going to be there with you and, and we're going to wish at that time when we enter into the kingdom of heaven that we had spent more time looking into the things of God when we're here and speaking on your behalf while we're here. So, Lord, help us to be diligent. Help us to be Bereans in our approach towards uh, the Bible and towards uh, our Christianity. And we pray this in your wonderful name. Lord, I just pray your blessings over our week and blessings over our lives. Cover us with your precious blood and put your angels around us. Protect us and keep us strong in you and strong and from keep us free from sickness and any harm of any kind in the name of Jesus. Amen.